You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everyone, um, and welcome to USIP, the United States Institute of Peace. We are thrilled to be able to offer this fourth in our series of panels on Russians in exile. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that this may be a very sad day. We don't have confirmed reports, but um, reportedly Alexei Navalny was killed last night in a Russian prison. Um, and so that obviously um, affects not only those who cared deeply about him, but also the theme of our topic today. So um, with that, I just want to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Gedman, who is the CEO of Radio Free Europe and the co-founder of American Purpose Magazine. Thank you. So good morning, everybody. It's nice to, to see all of you and those joining virtually. I'm Jeff Gedman, and I'm the publisher and co-founder of American Purpose. I'm now a two-time former president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and serve on its board and, and another new federal board overseeing U.S. international media. Um, my very brief framing remarks. So we've got now this month 10 years, if I count correctly, since the Russian invasion and annexation of Crimea. Uh, we have two years since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I don't have to tell you what a year, because we have this year important elections around the world, in Europe, in Germany in the fall, in three important states where the AFD is surging, and of course in the United States of America, where so much is at stake and in play. And then, as you've just heard from our host, uh, reports today that Mr. Navalny in I may put it this way, and Vladimir Putin's clutches is dead. It's, um, it's easy to say, but I think it's fair to say that we're at one of those large moments in history where there's a great deal of fluidity and dynamism and uncertainty. I think more than uh, anything I can recall in my professional life. We have a great panel today, this fourth in this series. You, you know, in Washington, uh, I think. We, we often scoff uh, of the vision thing. We belittle it and we minimize it. Uh, but in my view, first comes vision and then comes strategy and tactics and tasks. But you have to have some sense, aspiration of where you want to go in this life. Individuals, nations, as an international community. And Miriam, that's what your panel is about. It's not about my view. It's your panel. It's not about predicting the future or, uh, or exaggerating our influence, actually. But it's trying to assess probabilities of scenarios and where we do have influence because we do have a vision of a better Russia with more decent, accountable government, which will provide a better life for Russians and certainly far more peace and security for Ukrainians and for the entire region. I'm going to say one last thing in my introduction because, Miriam, you, uh, you uh, invited me to, encouraged me to. Uh, in this theater and in this larger play at hand, 
uh, Vladimir Putin seems to be on a hostage-taking spree. One was Mr. Navalny, another is Vladimir Karamorza, and by now there are a number of Americans. We got out Brittany Griner, the basketball uh, star, in a swap for a Russian arms dealer. Okay. But there are others, notably Paul Whelan, the ex-Marine, in prison since 2018. Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter, he will mark one year in pretrial detention next month in March. And then, of course, if I may say, uh, my colleague, Alsu Komasheva, uh, she went back to the Russian Federation, to Kazan and Tartistan, last summer on a private trip to visit her frail and elderly mother, thinking that in this society where mothers are cherished and sacred, she'd be safe. And as you know, to Vladimir Putin, mothers are apparently not so cherished and sacred and safe. And there she sits since with multiple charges piling up. Uh, please keep all of them in your thoughts and prayers. And, and if I may make this special plea to you, uh, we're awaiting and hoping that Alsu will get the same designation that's been awarded to Paul and Evan. That is, the determination by the U.S. State Department as wrongfully detained. It unlocks resources. It increases the probability that she, with others, will get out in a prisoner swap. And we want all of them out, an application of fullest energy and all diplomatic resources. And it's my view that the State Department is doing a good job, but it's not the right and full job until people are home with their families, and they're not yet. So thank you for letting me make that special plea. This is a fantastic panel. It's the fourth in the series. Thanks to the U.S. Institute of Peace, thanks to the Institute of Current World Affairs, and really thanks to Greg Pfeiffer. Greg Pfeiffer is a journalist. He is a book author. He's an analyst. Uh, he's worked for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. He leads the Institute of Current World Affairs. But, but it always takes, there's a committee, it's a coalition, they're partners, we're a partner, American Purpose. But it always takes one person, if I may say, to uh, conceive of things and then drive them and make them happen. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you Greg, who played that role and made this happen principally. And he will introduce Miriam and a distinguished panel. Thanks, all of you, to for being here today. Greg, you have the floor. Jeff, uh, thank you so much. Uh, and also to uh, Sid Lipset uh, and everyone at uh, American Purpose on this truly shocking day. Uh, the Kremlin's killing of Alexei Navalny is meant to fan hopelessness among its critics and a sense of inevitability about the longevity of Putin's uh, paranoid Stalinist regime among Russians at home. 
Uh, our panelists will talk about that, uh, I hope, uh, uh, today. Uh, but first, I want to say that we're very happy to have uh, Jeff uh, Gedman back here in uh, person in Washington uh, after having uh, been acting uh, president of uh, Radio Free Europe. In addition to all the important writing and discussions that uh, his group is putting on, uh, he's still uh, committed to RFERL and not least campaigning to release uh, all Sue, who is essentially being held uh, hostage in a Russian prison. And also big thanks to the U.S. Institute of Peace uh, and to uh, Mary Glantz, to uh, Elizabeth June, uh, Heather Ashby, and Ambassador Bill Taylor. Thanks so much for putting on this series uh, with us uh, and hosting us so well here. Uh, and also thanks to everybody joining us online. This conversation is the most challenging uh, of all of our series of four talks uh, because it concerns very big unknowns. Even though what comes after Vladimir Putin or Putinism, uh, if his regime is maintained by successors, has already been one of the biggest questions about Russia for the past almost quarter century since Putin's sweeping into power ended a decade of post-Soviet westernizing reform. Looking to history is crucial. Putin is very much the product of traditional political Russian culture, having resurrected the kind of authoritarian regime that existed not only during the 70 years of Soviet rule, but also centuries of czarism. But the reasons for Putin's success and his longevity exist very much in the present day. Among them, some of the determiners of the Russian character and Russian culture, the country's vast geography, its terrible cl climate, its terrible winter, things that reinforce the importance of the collective rather than the individual in the imagination of a society for which survival has always been challenging. So what are the conditions that will help determine what comes next, both inside Russia and globally? It's crucial that we think about them now for our sake as well as for Russia's. What are the main challenges facing institutional and social reform, including decolonialization, interpreting of history and identity, and the interests of Russia's many minorities? How can the United States and other Western countries play constructive roles next time around? What lessons learned from the 1990s? I am absolutely delighted that we have some of the leading Russian exile voices here to discuss these questions. And I think another way to describe them simply is uh, leading global intellectuals. Sergei Guryev, joining us uh, online uh, from Paris, I think, uh, is provost and professor of economics at Sciences Po at Paris University. And later this year, he will be the next dean of London Business School. He previously ran the New Economic School in Moscow. He's served as chief economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And he is co-author of the book, Spin, Di Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century, which is an absolute must read. Uh, he is also a central hub of the Russian intelligentsia in exile. Natalia Arnaud, here with us in Washington, uh, is a well-known advocate of democracy and human rights 
who is founder and president of the Free Russia Foundation, a fantastic, dynamic organization that provides all kinds of help that is very crucial and nurturing to civil society actors, to future leaders, and many other exiles persecuted by the Russian and Belarusian governments. Free Russia is also a leading voice here in Washington and generally to Western policymakers advocating effective Russia and Eurasia strategies. Joining us from uh, Berlin uh, online, I, I think he's in Berlin, uh, where he's based, is Mikhail Tsigur, a leading independent journalist who worked for Newsweek Russia and the business daily Kommersant before becoming founding editor-in-chief of the TV news channel Dost. Uh, he is the author of the acclaimed All the Kremlin's Men, and most recently, the excellent new book, War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine, uh, although the British version that I read had a different subtitle. Uh, Mikhail won the International Press Freedom Award in 2014, uh, and he had a fabulous piece just yesterday in the New York Times uh, about how the Kremlin may feel that even completely sham elections are too much of a risk for Putin. Also joining us here uh, in Washington is uh, Jorgen Andrews. Uh, he is a State Department fellow here at USIP. Uh, he was previously Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, where he oversaw justice sector assistance programs across Europe and Asia. Uh, he's also served on the National Security Council and abroad, including in Russia and Kazakhstan. Here at USIP, Jorgen has overseen an impressive big expert project considering the potential for future political change in Russia. And we are honored to have as moderator Miriam Lanskoy, uh, who is Senior Director for Russia and Eurasia at the National Endowment for Democracy. She is a political analyst and an expert in democracy promotion in post-Soviet Eurasia. She co-wrote The Chechen Struggle, Independence Won and Lost, with former Chechen Foreign Minister Ilyas Akhmadov, and it's great that we have Miriam moderating today. Uh, so, uh, our panelists will talk for about 50 minutes, followed by a Q&A with the audience. Uh, here uh, in the room, please raise your hand if you have a question during that time. For those joining on Zoom, uh, please type your questions into the Q&A box and we will read them to the panelists. Uh, and with that, I will hand over to you, Miriam. Okay. Um, good morning, everyone. It's a difficult and sad day. Um, we learned that uh, most likely Navalny passed away. Um, and I think correctly characterized as killed by this regime. And I think, um, although the, the lawyers representing him and his team are um, looking for confirmation and for facts um, before we can be absolutely certain, um, most likely it probably is true. And I think we do have to start with um, thinking about what this means uh, for Russia, for Russia's democratic movement, and for the future. Um, let me start by saying that, of course, I'm very, very sad uh, for Navalny, for his family, 
and consider this a real tragedy for everybody that knew him. At the same time, even though I'm very sad, I feel more deeply that I must do tomorrow more than I've been doing yesterday. And that is how martyrdom works. It is the most powerful narrative in human history. I'd like to point out to you that Pontius Pilate did not destroy Christianity, hardly. And that many, many people in Russia today, I suspect, are feeling the way that I do. That the people who are in jail demand from us more uh, on the path of defining Russia's future. So why don't I stop there? That's kind of my own first reaction. What I would suggest to our panelists is perhaps what we start with is to go around and get your reactions to this news. And then on the second time around, um, we will get more into uh, scenarios and questions about um, different paths of Russian development um, in the future. And um, Sergey, why don't we start with you? Thank you. Thank you very much, Miriam. Uh, the panel is about the post-Putin Russia, future of Russia. Interestingly, in the last conversation with Alexei, before he's going back to um, Russia in uh, January 2021, we had this conversation with him in December 2020. It's still on, on the YouTube channel of uh, TV Rain, the TV channel that Mikhail was at some point uh, the funding, the funding editor in chief, and uh, also on my YouTube channel. We we talked exactly about those issues, and um, I think this uh, this conversation is something that I really recommend to watch because it clearly communicates uh, what Alexei was standing for. I, I still I still don't know, and I still hold that this tragic news is not confirmed. But uh, I would just say that Alexei had a very clear vision for Russia. His Russia, his post-Putin Russia was a... You know, his post-Putin Russia was a, and is and will be a, uh, the vision of a European democratic peaceful country. Uh, inclusive uh, civil nation, uh, nation state, and not empire. Uh, this country where everybody would have an opportunity to prosper. And uh, this is something that was very, very clear. Um, and I highly, highly recommend uh, uh, reading this uh, transcript of this interview or, or uh, watching this interview. That's a very, very clear message, which I certainly support. And I guess uh, I guess that's I would, uh, that's uh, where I would like to end my introductory remarks because I think on this day I just can say um, listen to what Alexei has said. Also watch his words in the film Navalny, where he is actually asked um, this question: What happens if they kill you? He tells exactly this, like you said, Miriam. They kill me because they will, if they kill me, they will kill me because they're afraid, because they know that we are strong and uh, you should continue uh, doing more exactly because you know that we are stronger than them. And so we should continue this fight. So I'll stop here. And uh, I guess uh, 
later on we'll have more specific questions to discuss. Thank you. Uh, Mikhail, will you go next? Yeah, thank you, Miriam. Uh, you know, I think uh, the the one of the most important questions for for this morning uh, is not uh, about post Putin's Russia, but about post Navalny's Russia, um, and how how Navalny's death can uh, can affect uh, us, can uh, what influence to to the Russian society, to the Russian state, to the Russian bureaucracy. Um, and and actually, the, there are two different, uh, two quite opposite uh, versions. Uh, and the first, the, the first answer is that that everything is going to change, because uh, for for a lot of people, uh, for a lot of people in Russia and outside of Russia, Navalny mm, for many years has been uh, the symbol of the, of the future. He was. Uh, for many years, he was considered to be the future president of Russia, and a lot of people have have lived with that with that knowledge that he is the path. He is the person who uh, who um, who's got the vision. He, he he has always been the uh, the most prominent visionary about uh, Russians uh, post Putin's um, future, and it was very clear and it was very. And he was very straightforward, and and he was uh, he has always been ready to change to admit his mistakes if previously uh, he he said something wrong. Um, another another answer um, that that I should uh, uh, speak about as you know pr pragmatic journalist, pragmatic uh, um, uh, Russian watcher uh, who has seen a lot of changes. And this answer would be that nothing would change. Uh, that aside, uh, all emotions aside, but uh, um, Alexei Navalny uh, was in prison for for so many years. He uh, he was not particularly uh, um, visible by majority of uh, of Russians inside the country. He was not actively he 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 was not the actor of. Uh, um, of the life outside of Russia, so probably the um, the theory might have been that uh, actually it, 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 it's going to be the same; nothing would change. And but as a historian, I know that this answer is wrong. So the the, the pragmatic, the usual, the usual question, the usual answer, uh, that hypothesis that. Uh, uh, great leaders go and they don't leave a trace, or just uh, great newsmakers uh, um, can disappear and nothing will uh, will happen. In in Navalny's case, this this answer is clearly wrong because he is uh, um, he is going to be much fr from starting this day. He's going to become much more. Than, than he was, his uh, if if we uh, if we have accept the fact that that he he's dead, that means that that his story is is fully written, and he he has become the the pure and genuine example of uh, Russian Messiah. He it's 
it it sounds weird. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for for those uh, um, uh, strange words. But in uh, in contemporary Russian history, we we have never had that example of the person who was so idealistic and who was so devoted to his uh, righteous case, uh, who who could show us the, uh, that ideal moral example. And I think that was one of the reasons for a lot of Russians to become very cynical. We have been discussing the cynicism as the, the mortal disease of Russia today for many years. We have been discussing that uh, uh, Russians are cynical. They do not believe in democracy. They do not believe in freedom of speech. They do not believe in fair elections. They they um, they think that everything is propaganda. They think that every politician is the same. So now they, they have a chance to stop believing that. Now they have a chance to see that, um, that um, uh, not everyone is equally cynical. Now, now uh, there, there is the way um, for many Russians to uh, to think twice. So I guess that um, uh, post Navalny's Russia could be very different from from the day we uh, we lived. Yeah, we had yesterday. Sorry for my emotion words. No, that was great, um, Natalia come to you yeah well first of all I would urge everybody um, not to talk about Alexei Navalny in the past tense um, we still don't know um, what happened uh, Navalny's lawyers are now en route to the strict regime colony in uh, Yamal and in its region and um, um, what the Russian authorities did um, happened on Friday, very, very possible that uh, the lawyers will be allowed to enter the prison only on Monday. And the Russian authorities, whatever they did, will have a lot of time to hide <laughs> any crimes uh, they did. And uh, of course, also we shouldn't, uh, if confirmed, uh, we shouldn't say uh, like the Kremlin uh, is pushing the narrative that uh, Navalny has died in prison and uh, speaking about blood clots and things like that which is very ridiculous. Um, in that case, it would be clear that um, the Kremlin's regime and uh, Vladimir Putin personally assassinated Alexei Navalny. And I will never be able to talk in any case about him in the past tense, like I cannot do that about Boris Nemtsov. Uh, for me, he's the most alive person. Um, Alexei Navalny um, is the Russian opposition leader who developed this vision of the beautiful Russia of the future. He's a hero. Uh, he's a symbol of um, Russian resistance, a courage of Russian people. Heroes don't die. Heroes motivate us, as Miriam said, to do more things. I feel very outraged. I feel very angry. Uh, but I know that uh, when me or anybody on my team or anybody in our community feel exhausted, feel nervous breakdown, feel burnouts, whatever. We will always remember about people like Boris Nemtsov, like Anna Politkovskaya, like Natalia Stimirova, like Alexei Navalny. And, and I hope that um, we just, all of us, 
do a lot to to change the situation inside Russia uh, because uh, we do need post-Putin Russia as soon as possible. It's too murderous, too atrocious. Um, and um, the beautiful Russia of the future that Alexei Navalny believed in is really something we do need. Um, it's very possible. We do deserve it. The world will be better. And um, it's maybe just only emotional things, but it's uh, also what gives us um, motivation and courage uh, to all of us. Uh, Alexei said himself in this interview to Sergei Guriev and in many other interviews that um, it's I if it ever happens, it means that uh, Putin fears him and people like him. It means that the regime is not strong at all, even if, it, if it's, um, if it's uh, scared of people who are in jail like in the very, very far north. Uh, and again, uh, and we also should think about all other political prisoners. They are not safe, all of them. I'm immediately thinking about Vladimir Karamurza, about Ilya Yashin, about Alexei Gorinov, about Evan Gishkovich, also Kurmashova and many others. We should do everything. We just, we cannot sit still. We should act and act more and double our efforts. Thank you. Thank you. Your so very hard to add to what's already been said. Um, but what I, would, what I would mention is that with this somber news today, if it turns out to be true, um, you know, it's really a, a reminder of um, just how, as, as has been said, how fearful, how insecure, how brittle uh, an authoritarian uh, regime is and becomes, and uh, it further demonstrates the, the moral and the political bankruptcy of Putin and the system that he has created. Uh, it also reminds us um, that uh, it's important to stay connected to our faith that regimes like this, um, who are this insecure, this weak, this fearful, um, already carry within themselves the seeds of their own destruction. And the, 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 the analogy I like to use is, is a pressure cooker. Uh, regimes like this in their growing insecurity feel the need to close off every little uh, escape valve that lets pressure out of the system. And as they do that, the, the pressure builds and builds inside the pressure cooker. And this leads them to be fearful that any release of pressure, uh, however small, could cause the whole system to, to blow, that the lid would blow off the, the pot. And so um, this is why regimes like this tend to look very, very strong until they're not. It's, it's a cliche, but um, the, the pressure cooker looks stable until the lid blows. And uh, part of the challenge here, is since none of us can predict when or exactly how the lid will blow, uh, we try to envision uh, different ways change could come politically in, in, a, in a system like Putin's. And uh, it, it was my privilege uh, about a year ago to lead an exercise. Uh, we had close to two dozen um, very experienced uh, Russia hands from across a wide spectrum, some from civil society, academia, think tanks and uh, current and former um, government officials in the national security and foreign policy realm. 
uh, all told probably hundreds of years of experience in the group um, working on Russia. And uh, their strong recommendation was to not get sucked into specific scenarios of how political change might happen or who might succeed Putin. Um, there are endless rabbit holes to go down. Instead, they, they encouraged um, policymakers to think about uh, the type of regime that would be produced if and when political change comes. And we know political change will come. We don't know when. Putin's lifespan will end at some point, however it ends. But to be prepared for that, this group um, was very emphatic that we are not about regime change. Um, we putting, putting the U.S. finger on the scale, trying to pick a winner in Russia's internal political dynamics is um, almost certainly counterproductive and not likely to succeed. But that said, there were lots of things that that group felt that we could be prepared for. And they, they grouped all of the many scenarios into three buckets. One was we will get a regime in Russia that um, is aggressive, um, not unlike the Putin regime, perhaps even more so. Um, the second one is we will get a regime that either genuinely or, or falsely uh, appears to be liberalizing. And then the third bu bucket is the chaos bucket, that, that uh, there will be strife or, or, or um, a con contestation of power inside Russia for some period of time. And their overwhelming recommendation was, just to summarize a lot of material, their overwhelming recommendation was don't be afraid of the chaos bucket that um, sometimes things do need to fall apart uh, in order to build something anew. And um, they were very reluctant to get sucked into uh, personalities and individuals and, and, and particular modes of transition um, to avoid some of the mistakes that they felt were made in the 1990s. So um, there's a lot more to unpack there, but those are kind of the three major um, pieces and there are lots of other takeaways um, that, that we'd be happy to discuss further. But you know, from, a, from a, a perspective of people who follow Russia closely here in Washington, um, those are some of our thoughts. And I think um, you know, if, if today's news unfortunately turns out to be true, um, the, the kind of black swan event that could release a little bit of pressure in the Russian regime um, could very well be upon us. Could 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 still be years away. So it's. Um, I look forward to today's discussion and, and thank you, Miriam and others, for for allowing me to uh, to join you. Thank you, thank you very much, Jurgen. You've given us sort of an ideal way of uh, uh, segueing to the the question of scenarios, and I like very much how you phrase this. That um, what the experts that you've consulted with. Uh, to write the non-paper, uh, they seem to be of the opinion that you can't get to a positive scenario, perhaps without chaos. Perhaps chaos is a step towards it. Uh, and maybe that's a question that I'd like to ask um, uh, the others. We tend to group um, different kinds of scenarios as uh, the present continues indefinitely. Um, in my personal opinion, that's the least likely. <laughs> uh, we're in a historical pivot point where uh, unexpected things are happening all the time um, and Russia is changing very, very rapidly. Uh, 
there are many scenarios of destabilization, be it uh, some kind of popular revolt, be it private armies, be it a technocratic coup. Um, I would like to push, if I may, um, panelists to tell me, uh, how, how do you think about them? How should, um, or how, how should we think about potential destabilizing scenarios? What might be positive ones? Would you always consider them to be negative? In a situation where the present seems to be dragging Russia further and further into totalitarianism. Um, how, how do we think about the possibility of um, some kind of uh, protest, other kinds of um, possible scenarios in the future? Uh, often we're very scared of them because we saw uh, we have a story about the Russian Revolution, we have a story about the 1990s, and we consider chaos to be extremely, extremely harmful. Um, so why don't I, um, why don't we go around again and talk about um, kind of future, future scenarios and how, how to approach or how to judge uh, the possibility of, of different kinds of instability in the future. Why don't we start with you, Sergei? Thank you, Miriam. Um, uh, I think, uh, by definition, uh, black swans are impossible to predict. Uh, but uh, indeed, uh, we can identify trends that can bring uh, destabilization of uh, regimes. The pressure on the regime uh, that we talked about is uh, is indeed mounting uh, through different uh, different. Uh, 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 events and uh, we saw we saw Prigozhin school, which was completely unexpected, and yet it happened. Um, we also know that other people have learned from Prigozhin school that it's dangerous to uh, to re re rebel against uh, against um, Putin. Physically dangerous, and I'm pretty sure that that's been clear to many people around Putin before, and now even more clear. But we do see protests. We see protests of uh, family members of mobilized soldiers. Uh, we do see uh, that uh, Putin bets everything he has on victory in Ukraine. It will be very hard for him to just leave Ukraine. And therefore, I think if Ukraine gets to win this war, and that depends to a great extent on, on Ukraine's uh, allies, uh, Putin will be much weaker. But in any event, I think the change of the regime will come when Putin is gone, this way or another, either because he's a mortal human or because people around him understand that he's too weak and he's a uh, liability. And even though there are huge risk in, risks involved in, um, in standing up against him or conspiring against him, uh, well, they they would still uh, see that he is dragging them down down the drain. So at some point, at some point, he will go, and that will destabilize the regime. This regime is based based on Putin. We talked about distinctions between Putin and Putinism, but uh, for me, as a scholar of non-democratic regimes, this regime is a personalistic regime. It's based on Putin. It's based on Putin's uh, 
uh, rapport with uh, some Russian people on his narrative that he uh, brought stability and prosperity in the first decade of his rule. Nobody else around him can uh, can uh, base their legitimacy on that. He also picked people around him so they hate each other, they don't trust each other. Uh, that helps him to protect himself from the coup in the palace. On the other hand, once he's gone, the whole um, the whole system uh, won't be able to function as before. And so I guess uh, the regimes like this are succeeded by a collegial rule of people around them who can choose a weak successor or try to establish something like a junta, a collegial body to run the country together. And eventually, I think, unless they succeed in building a a very, very repressive, Stalinist-level repressive or, or North Korean-level repressive regime, eventually they will have to uh, start negotiations and that will involve internal liberalization and also the bargaining over removing certain sanctions in exchange for um, for uh, getting out of Ukraine over whatever calendar. So I think I think there is an opening here once Putin is gone. Before that, I think uh, uh, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't really hope for the change and to push Putin out either physically. That is not something I can predict, nor I am an expert on Putin's uh, health uh, or socially and politically, meaning that. Uh, uh, Russians will protest. Now we see protests of uh, for families of the draftees, but there will be more protests related to economy. Economy is not doing well. So eventually, eventually, this uh, this will make Putin a liability more than an asset to people around him. It's hard for them to coordinate. They are scared of being poisoned and kill themselves. But at some point, uh, point uh, Jordan said. The this uh, pressure cooker will not uh, manage to function as before. So I think I think these are big trends which are going, uh, which are which we can already observe. The pressure is mounting, and unfortunately we cannot identify a specific uh, moment when the the system uh, system cannot function as before. Thank you, uh, Mikhail. Um, thank you so much. I, um, as a as a person uh, who has once written the book called "The Empire Must Die" uh, about the revolution, uh, the Russian Revolution of 1917, I um, I love comparing uh, Russia to today to what what used to happen uh, 100 years ago, and I think that. Um, for now, the, those comparisons uh, do not work. So we, yes, the the revolution as happened 100 years ago won't happen again, uh, due to a lot of different reasons. Uh, uh, Professor Guriev says that uh, Russian economy is not is not doing great, uh, but still, um, it's not uh, um, catastrophic enough uh, to cause the the revolution uh, of a scale what. Uh, of a scale of, of 1917. As we remember, uh, Vladimir Lenin uh, was describing the, the situation, saying that uh, Russian working class has nothing to lose um, except for the, for their chains. And that was the, the, the very important condition for the revolution. And we see that, that in Russia today, uh, majority, uh, of people still have a lot 
to lose. And overall, the, 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 the level of, of living, the, the standards of, of living are much higher than they used to be um, 20 years ago or like ever in Russian history. And uh, when it comes to the bureaucracy, when it comes to regional authorities, when, it's, when it comes to the, uh, the, the people who run um, uh, the security apparatus, it makes it more, even more important. They, they have a lot, they have a lot to lose. And I think that's uh, in a way, that's for me, that's, that's the proof that uh, the real chaotic scenario is not possible within the, um, the nearest or at, at least if, if, if I was, uh, if, if I had to speak about the perspectives for Russia yesterday, before uh, the news we, we received uh, uh, this morning, um, I would be definitely saying that uh, I do not believe in in in, in, cha in chaotic scenario uh, because of that kind of stability in Russian bureaucracy, because of that kind of uh, uh, interdependence of Russian bureaucracy that that seems to be very um, very unified and very. Uh, and enjoying a lot the way of life they have, they they still uh, didn't lose a lot after the the beginning of the, of, of the full uh, full scale aggression. They they still are not suffering because of sanctions. They they still are uh, really thankful for for President Putin for for the way of life they they have. And I think that uh, provided that uh, moral um, atmosphere within Russian uh, bureaucracy, within Russian um, uh, security services, the most probable scenario is, is obviously um, um, uh, and it, it's, it's not the shortest scenario, is uh, some kind of uh, the second uh, the second act of, of Stalin's death. Uh, Putin is gone. And a group of people who who surrounded him are starting uh, um, trying to deal with it, trying to to organize uh, um, a junta uh, uh, in uh, interim um, uh, system of balances, and and that's that could be the the beginning of very long process of of transformation. And I I guess that um, that uh Putinist uh re regime is going to survive uh uh and is is going to slow to be slowly transformed after his uh after his death but uh his death is obviously the the the, the major condition uh for for any changes um uh, in future russia i i don't i don't think that that uh, any kind of revolution, any kind of uh, popular protest, or at least uh, yesterday, I I was sure that uh, that, that that any popular protest uh, is not able to change the situation. Okay, thank you, uh, Natalia. Do you want to say a bit about scenarios? Sure. Uh, well, it's difficult to predict. Uh, talking about Russia. Uh, when uh, in December of 2012 I had to flee Russia on a 48-hour notice, um, I thought I'll be back in a year because I saw the biggest uh, rallies on Balotna and Sakharova. It seemed like the situation is going to change. 
It was unimaginable even to believe about the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it was hard to think that it can last that long. Uh, I think, but now we don't need a crystal ball, all of us, uh, to discuss this uh, so-called upcoming presidential elections. We understand that Putin will win with a landslide and just um, strengthen his um, power of Russia and um, portray his uh, predetermined and staged re-election as um, endorsement of the war with Ukraine. Um, but at the same time, yes, we understand that uh, this regime is personalistic and uh, um, it will change. I, I, the same as Virim, I don't believe in that it will be the same. Um, and uh, Putin is more um, uh, like, I, know, I, I don't believe in the, um, Russian elites who are very the most uh, cowardice <laughs> uh, or uh, I don't believe that Russian military would start being an actor. Uh, I more believe in uh, biological reasons and um, I more believe in Russian society. And um, I don't think that, uh, again, uh, United Russia will pl play some role in this personalistic uh, vertical of power. Putin is more like, um, I don't know, Portugal's Salazar or Spain's Franco rather than Chinese Mao or Soviet Stalin. Uh, but also, I understand that um, there are a lot of skepticism about good scenarios in Russia, but as a pro-democracy Russian, we just cannot afford not to believe in a good scenario and moreover to fight for it, to have this vision and uh, to have to build roadmaps how to get there. It's impossible for us just to, to give up and just to listen and be pessimistic. We just don't have this... Um, um, luxury to do that. We have to fight every second of our life for that. Uh, also, um, from history we know that all the regimes eventually fall uh, and we should be very prepared. Um, it was a big mistake not to be ready for changes uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Also understand that we have to act now, uh, improving the things in the future. Um, for example, um, I cannot not help uh, like Freedom House and many other organizations, and NED, of course, and others, not to help exiled Russians, because we know how they understand the situation inside Russia, how uh, they are influencing the public opinion, how they understand how to counter propaganda and do many other things. Uh, they are, will be the ones, they are foreign, uh, uh, not foreign agents as the Kremlin regime portrays them, but they are agents of change. They are the ones who will be. The good scenario is when it's implemented by pro-democracy Russians. I understand that if I, my organization, many others, that we stopped working with in Ukraine with Ukrainians, searching for uh, Ukrainian POWs, civilian hostages for children, uh, working with Ukrainians to return them, documenting war crimes, uh, doing many other things uh, like mm, saying what is efficient with sanction regime, what is not, how to how the Kremlin regime circumvents the sanctions, things like that. The regime will prolong more. So again, uh, our action now is much more important than again thinking about. It. There are so many probabilities, but we, if we don't act now, it will be like when uh, again when Putin dies and he, he will eventually um, uh, again Putinism won't die, and uh, this is won't be the triumph of democracy. It will be just the beginning of a very painful work with our society, which is zombified by this propaganda for so many years. And again, we cannot afford to waste time working with Russians now. Yeah, please, Jordan. Just a really quick yeah. comment. Um, so our, our group of Russia experts identified the war in Ukraine as crucial to the future of 
Putin's regime, acknowledging that Putinism may, may survive long after. Um, they basically concluded that um, the, the sooner and the, the more uh, overwhelming uh, Russia experiences a defeat in Ukraine, the more likely Russia is to get uh, a, a true opportunity for change, um, significant change. Uh, and so their overwhelming recommendation uh, to policymakers was support Ukraine as much as possible, as soon as possible, um, because that's what gives Russia the greatest hope for positive change along the lines of what Natalia was saying. Um, yes, I, I think that's a very correct uh, comment and point. I, uh, I would note a couple of things. One is uh, my concern right now about political prisoners, uh, especially uh, Vladimir Karamurza, and uh, and and Yashin and Pivavarov, but of course, first of all, Karamurza because he's also suffering um, in in terms of his health, and the need to do a trade. Uh, Putin indicated in his interview uh, that he's looking for a trade. I would note that uh, Russian authorities arrested a German tourist recently, and uh, perhaps that's that's one area. Uh, and then, of course, um, support for Ukraine uh, is essential part of looking uh, for change in, in Russia itself. Um, should we open up to questions? I have many. If we, I can, I can keep going and asking questions, but we may have some in the room. We have uh, microphones coming around, so um, please wait for a microphone. Mm. There were, there were several hands up here. Way back over and then there's there. one over there. That's your yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for speaking today. Um, I have a question. Do you think that the events that happened today with the death of Navalny, do you think that, that will convince the Republicans in the Congress to support Ukraine, to give more aid to Ukraine? And do you think it will also maybe uh, help to lead to the downfall of, of uh, Trump? Thank you. I don't know who wants to take that. <laughs> uh, I would say there's there are a number of things going on right now. Um, there's, uh, in addition to the news uh, today about Navalny, there's also uh, statements about new threats from Russia uh, from in our um, Congress, and there's clearly a conversation going on in the House. Um, surely these two things are, are perhaps related. I, I don't know if um, anyone wants to say more about kind of U.S. politics on these issues. But yes, uh, uh, support for Ukraine is key uh, for Russia's future also. Uh, Gregory and then uh, Alexei. Thank you very much, Miriam, and thanks uh, to all the panelists for really a, a terrific, terrific um, discussion on this on this very sad and uh, depressing day. Um, I, have a, I have a question for all, all the panelists, but <clears throat> I'd like to say that, uh, or any of you feel free to, to address it. Um, Mikhail, you've written uh, very compellingly about uh, the formation of the Russian 
uh, imperial creation myth. Uh, you've written about it in a very nuanced way, but lots of others have, have recently written about this too. And um, often the conclusion is, well, Russians have been doing uh, these kinds of things uh, for hundreds of years, and so that's why they'll continue, uh, continue to do it. Um, at the same time, Sergei, uh, you've looked at the globalization of uh, authoritarian uh, authoritarianism and, and external factors uh, affecting them, uh, and you've written about what you call a, a modernization cocktail. Um, uh, Mikhail, Sergei, um, anyone else? Uh, could you say a few words about uh, about sort of both of these things, looking in inwardly uh, to, to to Russia and Russian history, and also sort of external conditions? Um, and specifically, have your opinions changed since both of you uh, uh, published your your recent books, and, and especially p perhaps now uh, with, with today's news? Um, thank you. Probably I should start. Um, you know, Russia. Russia is not the only the only empire uh, in this world. And when when we when you say that that Russia has been doing that for for centuries, that's true. Uh, exactly, Russia has been doing that for three centuries. Uh, we um, just uh, uh, just recently, I I, I was pre preparing um, my my new project about. Uh, the history of, of colonization of uh, of different parts uh, of former R Russian uh, empire, I, I realized that we we uh, we have silently passed the the uh, uh, three centuries of from the beginning of the war in Caucasus that started uh, exactly in in 1722 with with Peter the the first attacking Caucasus. During his war with Persian Empire, so so yes, Russia, uh, Russian experience as an empire is three centuries, um, and it's not the the only country in the world uh, that uh, had to struggle with this uh, with uh, with this experience and uh, who had uh, who posed a threat to its neighbors, to other peoples, to the people of. Uh, uh, Russia as well, so you know, and that—that uh, that was the the key issue of uh, that uh, um, idea of how can we overcome uh, overcome it? How can we get rid of uh, that imperial curse? How can we? Uh, what 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 should we do with with our mentality? Uh, how we we should change the perception of our history to get rid of the uh, the imperialist. Um, um, approach to uh, to Russia. Um, when I say we, I, I mean the Russian people. Um, and in in my recent book, War and Punishment, I I started it uh, and I actually finished it with with the presumption that uh, the beginning of full scale aggression of Ukraine changes everything. That that uh, brutal uh, point is um, is a symbol that that. All old previous perception is is not going to work anymore. That uh, more and more Russians uh, would understand that the idea of uh, of Russian greatness, the idea of uh, uh, of Russian superiority, uh, the idea of the unique uh, God chosen people, uh, is is really brutal and is really is really murderous. And uh, after this. Uh, 
uh, war crimes in, uh, in Ukraine, it, it's not going to be possible to uh, to spread that uh, imperial disease for for uh, for decades. And I still believe that even more. Um, I was expecting uh, diff- uh, very uh, very different uh, reactions from from Russian audience. I, I what I expected that um, I would face a lot of hatred because I I was trying to debunk uh, uh, very in a very painful way uh, the the imperial myths of Russian history. I actually start started uh, and I I will do that again and again. Uh, rewriting Russian history, and uh, um, I, I'm now still trying to, to eliminate traditional imperial narrative and try to write another um, another narratives of of new Russian history. And the reaction I encountered is completely different from uh, what I was expecting. Uh, I see a lot of people uh, who thought differently before that, before the beginning of, of this conversation, before the beginning of the, of the full-scale aggression, before sometimes uh, reading my book, they they are getting involved into that conversation. Sometimes it's hard, some, sometimes it takes time, but I don't, I don't see that, um, that uh, hatred from both sides. I was we, we we all know that uh, that sometimes Russian liberals are um, can also be Russian imperialists, but still I occasionally I think that that uh, we have started that very dramatic work and uh, it's inevitable. It's going uh, it's going to be long, but I see some some positive signs um, while I'm 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 working. Sergey, um, did you want to comment on this? Uh-huh. Yeah, I um, I would like to answer the, Greg's question about about uh, globalization and the impact of globalization on the uh, nature of dictatorships. So what we wrote in this um, book, Spin Dictators, uh, was that uh, the coming transformation of authoritarian regimes from being based on open repression and fear to being based on manipulation of information and lies uh, this is something that uh, uh, is linked probably to what we indeed called modernization cocktail, the spread of new technology, globalization, the potential benefits of being part of the global economy, not just for democratic societies, but also for authoritarian leaders. We talked about how it's harder today to grow your economy if you don't have a creative class, if you don't have people with tertiary education who are much more critical than people who can only read and write and who are good uh, industrial workers. Stalin needed those in the 1930s. While today, if if you are a successful authoritarian, like, uh, for example, leader of Singapore, you need educated, educated knowledge workers, if you like. And this creates powerful incentives to walk away from the old model of dictatorships and indeed uh, uh, rule based on lies rather than on fear. Now, uh, some some uh, uh, authoritarian leaders decide to go back to the 20th century model. Uh, in the book, we already talked about how that was the case in Venezuela, where uh, 
Chavez regime was a typical 21st century regime based on manipulation, we call those regimes spin dictators, while his successor, Maduro, who neither had Chavez charisma nor Chavez uh, lack of having a lot of oil money, uh, Maduro succeeded Ch Chavez exactly when oil prices came down. Maduro went back in time and, and started to use brutal force. So uh, that happens. That happens. Some of those spin dictators no longer can rule through uh, through manipulation. And actually, this is what happened in Russia as well. In the second edition of this book, uh, which uh, we um, sent to print uh, in the end of 2022, we said that we consider what's happened as indeed Putin going Maduro way, exactly because he was facing the problem that Navalny and people like Navalny have been too effective. And uh, then uh, your question, Greg, is also, does that mean that our theory is wrong? No, we don't think so, because what Putin has done going back in time, um, uh, opening up uh, to the model of mass repression and fear, which he already started to do before the war in 2021, in our first edition, which we finished in uh, spring 2021, we were talking about signs that that may be happening but really completed this transformation the first week after february 24 2022 when he closed down all independent media blocked facebook and um instagram and announced military uh, censorship and started to put people in jail for many years uh, so that transformation also undermined russian economy and that i think eventually uh now understood as a big putin's mistake because it shortened the uh, life expectancy of Putin's regime, exactly because it undermined the capacity of Putin's regime to um, to produce those benefits that Mikhail has mentioned in the beginning for his elites, for his entourage, and of course for Russian people at large. So I think uh, the modernization, the, the globalization still creates incentives to be less brutal. But some uh, some leaders some leaders decide that they go back in time because they lack capacity to continue functioning as speed dictators or uh, for some reason make mistakes. I think in, in the case of Putin, it's both. It's both the effectiveness of Russian opposition using social media, and Alexei Navalny was the leader in that. He really uh, attracted more people than uh, uh, TV shows to his YouTube channel, his weekly show. Uh, he was poisoned exactly on the day when he was coming back to Moscow on Thursday to go live again on his YouTube show. Why? Because that was the most important thing for him. He understood this is the most effective tool. And every week, wherever he was, he was coming, trying to come back on Thursday to go live uh, because it was an effective tool against Putin's uh, propaganda and lies. And in addition to uh, opposition using social media so effectively, it's also a mistake. Putin underestimated the courage uh, of Ukrainians. He underestimated unity and resolve of the West, which is now being tested, as we just discussed, in the in the House of Representatives and, uh, as well. But still, the West has done unexpectedly well relative to Putin's expectations. And he also overestimated his own army, which turned out to be corrupt and demoralized. So, so that was a mistake by Putin. But again, and I, I agree with everybody who said, we need to give more weapons to Ukraine, more money to Ukrainian government to win this war. If you want Russia to be democratic and peaceful, if you want to kick out Putin, Ukraine should win. And uh, I think I think this is this is something which 
has nothing to do with Spin Dictator's book, which I agree is a great book. Uh, but um, but this is something which is we see a war from 20th century going on in Europe today, and these are the wars which are not only won in the informational battlefield. These are the wars which are also being fought. These are hot wars which are being fought on the battlefield, and Ukraine needs weapons for this. And unfortunately, European Union cannot help Ukraine with that. Only United States can. A quick two finger yeah, on Mikhail's quick, point. Quick two so finger, on, and then I think we'll collect some questions. Right, get back yeah. to some questions. So, um, on this question of of Russia as a with an imperial identity, um, in many ways, it's it's like Russia is still a nineteenth century European colonial empire power. Uh, somehow, Russia didn't get the memo in the twentieth century that empires are no longer uh, advisable, desirable, sustainable, uh, acceptable, and our group um, identified that that Russian idea as, an, as a great imperial power with the, uh, the right to a sphere of influence on its neighbors as the, the greatest impediment for progress. That until that idea is surrendered and Russia embraces a different future for itself, um, uh, we will continue to face an aggressive Russia and, and, and have to take measures to protect, protect ourselves, our allies, and our partners. So why don't we collect um, a few more questions. So I saw Alexei, uh, I saw this lady here. So uh, maybe do one, two, three, and four. Is that okay? <coughs> My question is to Mr. Andrews. What do you expect would be the current administration's response to Navalny's murder beyond verbal condemnations? Would there be any physical act? Like, for example, we know that President Biden limited the range of the missiles provided by the United States to Ukraine in order to avoid escalation. Would be the murder of Navalny sufficient reason to escalate the situation? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Matthew Murray. I teach at Columbia and I worked, I formed an NGO in Russia in, um, to fight corruption and worked with Alexei for five years. And so a question about what, what he might be thinking right now about a response is the following. Is there an opportunity now to flood the information space in Russia with all of the great work that he did over the history of his anti-corruption foundation that was very analytical, right, extremely um, technical and, and sort of making the case around Putin's systemic corruption um, so strategically, tactically, is there a moment here? And I, I'm, I'm really asking this question because I don't know whether we ha in the West have done enough to flood the Russian information space and make the case around just how corrupt Putin and his people are, whether there are limitations on that technically, whether there are risks to it. I'm sure you all have views of this, but I'm just sort of re-raising this question at this point. Thank you. Thank you. Can we take two more? Uh, thank you. I'm Priscilla Clapp with USIP. Um, I'm in the Asia Center here. I'm looking at Russia from a different perspective than what we've been discussing this morning. Um, I think that the decision to invade Ukraine has created some other significant pressures that will affect Russia's future from the East, particularly the alliance with China. China is in the process 
of repopulating Siberia, both demographically and economically. Millions of Chinese have moved into Siberia. They are taking over large, large parts of central Siberia. Um, and that's a long-term Chinese ambition, particularly with Xi Jinping. Um, this is being ignored, obviously, because he has, he's dependent upon the relationship with China. The other big thing that he's doing that could affect internally is using the Asian minorities and other minorities in the country as cannon fodder, fodder in the war on Ukraine. And how will that affect internal stability in the future? Will other parts of Russia start to peel off towards Asia in the future? Is Russia going to get split between Europe and Asia. These are global trends that I think we, we shouldn't be ignoring as we look for the, at the post-Putin period, because he has sown the seeds of a lot of Russia's potential future destruction. Thank you. And behind you. Uh, thank you. My name is Elena Davlikanova. I'm a Democracy Fellow with the Central uh, European Policy Analysis. And thank you very much for talking a lot about the meaning of the victory of Ukraine for changes in Russia and the recent report of the Central European Policy Analysis containing Russia securing Europe also thinks that it is extremely important. But I would like to ask you, what do you mean by the victory of Ukraine? Because the narrative changed from as long as we uh, have to to as long as we can. And now it is Ukraine is still standing and this is already a victory and my second question is uh, do you think that the strategy of the United States uh, which allowed Ukraine to not be defeated but never allowed Ukraine to actually win this war by now should be forgotten and how should it be changed thank you okay we've got a lot of questions <laughs> who wants to start uh, Natalia, why don't we start with you? You haven't spoken. Yeah, uh, so um, on history, um, it's very important for us uh, Russians to understand that uh, we, um, we are in this point uh, because uh, we didn't analyze our history well enough after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We didn't condemn the crimes of the Soviet regime. We didn't think about all this. Uh, when I was in school, we were taught that uh, like uh, my ethnicity of Buryats and many others, we were voluntarily joined the Russian uh, Empire uh, and uh, so we, we didn't discuss all of that uh, we didn't discuss that yes it's a huge country it's not 11 um, time zones it's not now 80 plus regions it's uh, 190 ethnic minorities as well all this is very important for us uh, to move forward but at the same time uh, it's very important not to become hostage of our history this is what Putin does he's uh, twisting history um, he's making it as a dominance, while uh, the mentality and the behavior of many people, it's uh, impacted by their experience, but uh, who is <laughs> next to them about their environments. And so uh, it's very important for us, uh, for democracy Russians, to find good things, positive things in our history, to find new heroes, new concepts, and uh, just to, 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 to build on that. Uh, to make uh, our history not like leader-centric, not to discuss Tsars and then the Soviet leaders and then Putin and all that, but to remember about uh, people's resistance. Right now, it, in history, it, not only all these who are on the Putin side, but also we should remember about those who are resisting inside Russia and in exile, about all these political prisoners and all these protests about 
setting conscription centers on fire, derailing trains and all that, it's also part of the history. So I think this is also very important. About um, uh, flooding the space, I think it's uh, also um, up to Russians to talk to Russians and to, uh, to, to, to give this truthful information what is happening. Technically, it's very difficult because of uh, all these uh, restrictions and self-imposed sanctions of the big tech uh, and uh, not be able to um, target, uh, have more targeting inside uh, the country and things like that. While at the same time, Russia is the second country in the world to install VPNs or again, a lot of things are happening in social media and uh, even old school methods like uh, printing out internet, stuffing mailboxes and things like that. So this is happening. Um, on um, uh, ethnic minorities, Asian minorities, uh, it's true that it was very disproportionate, especially in the beginning of the war, but it's not only um, ethnical national republics, it's, it was more um, those uh, are being conscripted uh, to the war, uh, they are from the poorest regions of Russia, um, including, of course, and the majority of them are national republics. Um, and it was, of course, a deliberate uh, uh, strategy, a deliberate policy of the Kremlin's regime to impoverish regions, to take all the money to Moscow and then distribute it bet between regions. Uh, the biggest demand uh, is uh, for federalization. The Russian Federation is a very Potemkin village. It has never existed as a unitary state. There is more demand to have democratization of Russia, decentralization and federalization uh, rather than anything else, uh, rather than separatism. And even if it happens, it's also uh, not that easy. It's uh, still 80% uh, uh, Russian uh, minority, uh, majority. Uh, it's still 70% uh, of territories. It's very difficult even to think about all this border-wise uh, and, and anything else. Uh, Composition-wise, again, in the Republic of Buryatia, there are less than 30% of Buryats. And only, I think, six national republics where the titular um, ethnicity is in ma ma majority in this region. Uh, it was, again, Stalin's policy to divide, to, like, again, the Republic of Buryatia was divided into five parts, now three regions of the Russian Federation. And all this, it will be, it's huge Pandora box, it will be, it, it's more like all this decolonization should happen, you know, <laughs> with our values, with our mentality, rather than, like, it's a process, again, but also it, it, it's good, uh, and all the ethnicities, nations, they should have the right for choice, but only after democratization, this is the first thing. Only democracy in Russia is a guarantee of sustainability of Ukraine's victory. And in the Ukraine's victory, we understand uh, borders of 1991, internationally recognized borders, no Russian troops everywhere, no influence, nothing, just <laughs> like mind your own business. And um, Ukraine, of course, uh, joining NATO, EU, whatever Ukraine wants, like, can be like a civilized, normal, neighbor <laughs> this is the victory of ukraine like for us and then um, yeah did you want just to, to pick up a couple of the questions so uh, as a fellow here at usip i certainly don't speak for the u.s government i don't represent the government um, and i wouldn't presume to predict their reaction to today's events if if it proves to be true um, what i will say is that this news uh would add to an already massive pile of evidence that the putin regime is is engaged uh, in in an endless stream of illegal, um, horrific, immoral, dangerous, um, destabilizing behaviors in Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, and so, um, you know, this just adds to the case that our job number one should be to help Ukraine, 
uh, and to um, deter, contain, and mitigate Russia's unhelpful, un unconstructive, destructive behaviors um, throughout the international system. Um, on the question of communicating and, and kind of saturating um, messaging into Russia, um, you know, Putin's ability to control the, 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 met the, the modes by which people can communicate with Russians, um, uh, it, it, you know, he, he spends a lot of time and resources on preventing those kinds of communications. Um, so without a doubt, it is hard. Um, lots of folks are ra racking their brains trying to figure out how do we communicate directly to Russians? How do we communicate a, a vision to Russian, ordinary Russian citizens that there is a potential future out there in which they can be uh, independent, secure, and prosperous? And they don't need to, to fear uh, us or anyone else for that matter. And um, the tools are, are limited. It's difficult. Uh, and that's why in some ways, um, and those messages also often are better from other Russians. And so, uh, you know, there are lots of communications with the Russian community in exile about how they communicate with their friends and family and colleagues um, back in Russia. So. Um, I'm certainly not an expert in that field, but I know a lot of folks spend their time trying to build those bridges and establish that communication. Uh, and you know, however we may feel about the Putin regime, um, getting those messages, a, a hopeful message to the Russian people um, should be and is part of, of, of the goal here. Uh, Sergei Mikhail, did you want to comment on any of those questions? Yeah, I would, I would just say a couple of words on what victory of Ukraine is. I understand the question. I understand that uh, that today in the U.S. indeed the narrative has changed. But uh, since uh, we call this session exchange with uh, Russian exiles, I would like to say that um, uh, all Russian opposition organizations, communities have uh, spoken really clearly what victory of Ukraine is, should be, and why we need the why we need the victory of Ukraine. And all opposition politicians, including Alexei Navalny, exactly a year ago, when he wrote his letter, open letter from prison uh, on the first anniversary of the full-scale invasion, his 15 points of Russian citizens, in this letter he said very clearly, Russia should come back to 1991 borders, withdraw from Ukraine, Russia should send war criminals to international tribunals. Mm -hmm. Russia should pay reparations to mm -hmm. Ukraine. And all other opposition leaders in Russia have said the same, myself including uh, as a member of Russian Actions Committee, and I've also signed the Berlin Declaration. That's been done, uh, and uh, we all agree on what victory of Ukraine means. Now, is that victory feasible this year? I don't know. Uh, I certainly know it's not feasible without massive support from United States and Europe mm -hmm. to Ukrainian government and I call on Western leaders to provide this support exactly to support to to honor uh, Alexei Navalny's call from prison a year ago and his other his other speeches. Mm -hmm. So in that sense I think um, the victory of Ukraine is very clearly defined and should be pursued. Thank you. Uh, I just want to, to add a few, a few sentences. I definitely agree with, with Sergei uh, that, that victory of Ukraine is very important for 
for Russia and for the future of Russia. Uh, and that's that's definitely a uh, top priority. Um, another important issue uh, that comes to my mind today after all those questions uh, is that, yes, we, we need to remember that, that Russian people doesn't mean Putin and we, we don't need to, to, we must remember not to equalize that and we must remember that there are a lot of uh, 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 people inside Russia who believe uh, in in the democratic future of Russia. We we now see the uh, the, the videos and the pictures uh, of, um, we're receiving from Russia that in the, in the, a lot of uh, cities there are spontaneous memorials um, being organized for for Alexei Navalny. Although the the, the news is not confirmed, but uh, a lot of people are very emotional. They they are paying um, their tributes. They are bringing flowers. Uh, although they, they understand that it must be uh, very dangerous for them physically. Uh, and we must remember that we, and like the West, has a lot of uh, allies in Russia and these people are important because these people are uh, the future of Russia and yes, it's important to think about them. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's important to, uh, to think of how we can help them. Um, it's uh, we it's yeah we we don't need to flood Russia with with any kind of information because there are um, a lot of uh, very high quality Russian media working in exile uh, and they are important they they are watched uh, in Russia they have the audience um, but the, there are. Uh, very easy steps for for example um, after the, the the beginning of uh, full-scale invasion uh, Google and and, and YouTube uh, made been uh, um, sanction uh, against all uh, Russian media all Russian YouTube uh, users uh, and um, any independent Russian media working in, in exile ca cannot monetize their work mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's a problem that's that's a well-known problem for for everyone who is dealing with with Russian media with Russian independent media and it seems like it's possible to solve the uh, this problem although it's very easy to, um, to solve it so yes we uh, I think we, we we do we do not need to impose something we should just uh, think of helping those Russians who already work. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you. Um, our time has ended. I just want to um, kind of redouble uh, the point made about flooding um, Russian media. Navalny's films, uh, the film about the uh, mansion had 100 million views yeah. or more than that. Uh, the film that Mikhail, yeah, please. 250. 250. Uh, 250 okay. million. Um, we do not need to flood. Uh, and I would, I would just add Mikhail's film that he made uh, a few weeks ago has over a million at this point, looking precisely at the question of uh, uh, Russia colonialization of Siberia. Uh, so there are, there are Russians making excellent material and the best thing for us to be doing is supporting them, mm -hmm. supporting their work. Uh, on the question of Ukraine's victory, I think all of us are very clear. It's Ukraine and it's 1991 yes. borders. Um, 
I'm very grateful to everyone, to all of our panelists. Thank you. It's a difficult time and very difficult questions that we're considering. And uh, thank you also to the audience and to USIP yes. and uh, oh, Greg, I'm sorry, you're 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 not going to make some closing comments uh, into Greg. <laughs> Thank, thank you so much, uh, Miriam, uh, and all of our panelists for an absolutely terrific uh, discussion on this very, very difficult day. Thank you. And thank you to all of you who uh, came here in person and to everybody online. And apologies uh, that we couldn't get to questions online. Um, and thanks also to the US uh, Institute of Peace and to American Purpose uh, for joining the Institute of Current World Affairs uh, for uh, this uh, panel series. Uh, just before uh, we go, I would like to say that video uh, of this talk will be available on the uh, Institute website uh, and also on the USIP and American Purpose uh, sites. Um, we also have video from the three previous discussions in the series, including uh, on Russian scholars in exile uh, and on the political opposition. Uh, I look forward to continuing these important conversations. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.